Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown, a.k.a. J.B. West, on the beaches of D-Day in Normandy, France, and my good friend and compadre, J.B. East. Uh, James Bradley is in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. How are you doing today? Hey, Jeff. I'm great. Well, tell us what you got going today. I, I understand we have a fascinating story that a lot of people have maybe heard about, but don't know much, but don't know all the don't know all the details. Well, here in Vietnam, it's the New Year, and they call it Tet, T-E-T. And I just had the experience of phoning friends in the United States, and I would say, it's Tet. And they would say, oh, like the Chinese New Year? No, it's not like the Chinese New Year. It is Vietnamese New Year, and it's called Tet. And they never heard of Tet. And then I would say, have you ever heard of the 1968 Tet Offensive? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't make the connection. So I thought we'd do this show on the Tet Offensive of 1968. So let's get back to the Vietnam War. We're in the 1960s. And I'll ask everybody, every listener, Jeff, listeners, everyone, to just answer the question in your mind, when did the Vietnam War start? Tick, 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 think. When did the Vietnam War start? Well, obviously, it started in 1964 with the Gulf of Tonkin uh, uh, resolution, right? No, uh, maybe it started in 1956 when uh, Eisenhower cut the country in two with the Geneva Accords, and they created a North Vietnam and a South Vietnam that had never existed. No, maybe it started when... President Harry Truman, right when Japan surrendered, sent all the equipment ready for the invasion of Japan. He sent it down to the French to help uh, in Vietnam. No, maybe it started when Franklin and Delano Roosevelt cut off Japan's oil because they invaded Vietnam. We've been thinking about Vietnam, defending Vietnam, sending armaments you know, to uh, quell Vietnam from FDR's times. So this is long in the tooth. And this story is going to go all the way into uh, Richard Nixon's presidency. So get ready for a historical ride here. So first of all, let's talk about mission creep. You know, we've got the CIA coming in in the 1950s under Eisenhower, and they set up a, um, a, a government and they cut Vietnam in two. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the geography of Vietnam, you might be familiar with the geography of California. Let's take California and make it Vietnam. So San Diego is Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City now. So San Diego, Saigon, and up in Northern California, up in the mountains, there's a Hanoi. Now, that was one country. It was one unit for thousands of years. And what happened in the 1950s when Americans weren't paying attention is the Eisenhower administration cut the country in two. So Ho Chi Minh had just beat the French and it was one Vietnam. And we didn't like that. Secretary of State Foss, um, uh, Dulles didn't like that. So we just drew a line and we said, this is a demilitarized zone. And hey, hocus pocus, there's an East Germany, a West Germany, a North Korea, South Korea. And look at this, there's two countries, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. 
Now, this is important because if you look in the 1960s coverage, 1970s, if you go up to today to the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, they say there was a North Vietnam, a South Vietnam, and they were in a civil war. And there was a line between the country and the North tried to come down and the South tried to keep, that is all baloney. I came here and had my head turned around on a swivel. I interviewed Vietnamese um, you know, who fought in the war. And they were like, one guy said, geez, Mr. Bradley, you guys had big imaginations. You printed a map of our country in the New York Times and you got the United Nations to say there's two countries. He said, that was ridiculous. He said, I never thought I needed a visa to visit my uncle in North Vietnam. And if you read uh, the prime minister, Pham Van Dong's speeches, every single speech he gave in this in, for 20 years was he'd begin it. There's only one Vietnam. There's always been one Vietnam. There's, you know, so there was always, there was only one Vietnam and this separation of North and South, that was just an American overlay. Imagine that you're, I'm from Wisconsin. So imagine that uh, the Philippines invades Wisconsin and they just cut it in half. And all of a sudden, like I need a visa to get to Madison, Wisconsin from Northern, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. We got relative, there's only one Wisconsin and it would always be that way. So uh, Mission Creek, we have the CIA in there at first and we put in this President Ziem, it's spelled D-I-E-M, but it's pronounced Ziem. And uh, the CIA is gonna just move things around and tell Ziem how to run a democracy and he has no idea how to do it. And there's no tax base. The peasants don't believe that there's a South Vietnam. And then, oh, let's put in some advisors. These advisors are gonna be the Green Beret. Dun, 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 dun. You know, the Green Berets are gonna come and they're gonna invite, they're gonna put steel into the South Vietnamese military to win one for democracy. And geez, that's not working. So we'll send in more advisors. And then oh, Tonkin Gulf, false flag. Well, we gotta go to war. So Johnson doesn't want a war. He doesn't want a World War II with, with millions of troops. So guess what? We're gonna win it through the air. We're gonna make them surrender, just like we made Japan surrender. You know, we didn't invade Japan, folks. We beat them from the air. But guess what? Japan was an island and Vietnam wasn't. And Ho Chi Minh studied under the tutelage of Mao Zedong, who said, you know, give up the cities. It doesn't matter. Just have a back base up in the mountains, uh, make your uh, a team there. And uh, you know you can come out when you're ready. Give the give the cities to the enemy. It does not matter. So uh, we're going to win from the air. Okay, shiny steel. The Johnson administration, rolling thunder. We're going to bomb the hell out of the North Vietnamese, and they're going to surrender. So what do we do? We create an airstrip in Da Nang, about in the middle of the country. And it's not an airstrip. It's an air base. I drove around the uh, uh, ruins of that air base. It's like five miles this way and three miles that way. You know, you'd have to call a taxi to go from one end to the other. It was enormous. So we put in this air, uh, this huge air base with these beautiful shiny uh, airplanes, and then we're going to bomb the bejeepers out of North Vietnam. Well, what are we? What are we going to bomb? 
Why don't we bomb their oil facilities? Then they'll surrender. Well, gee, Ho Chi Minh figured that out. Ho Chi Minh spent 30 years overseas studying the West. You know what Ho Chi Minh did with the oil before we bombed their refineries? He put it in barrels. And he sent the barrels all out the countryside. So the oil supply was like floating in duck ponds all over the country. Ho Chi Minh had, had, had you know, outflanked America um, and, he, and he did so every step of the way. So we have this air base and it's bombing, you know, fields and the Vietnamese go underground and, and it's not working. Well, guess what? The Vietnamese start attacking the air base. Well, you need some Marines to protect the air base. So in 1965, the Marines in that famous newsreel, you know, they hit the beach and they come in. So Johnson says to America, you know, we're not gonna have a ground war here. The Marines just came in to protect the air base. Well, guess what? The Marines in the air base started getting incoming, grenades and rocket fire. So the Marines said, you know what? We better go out and get those Vietnamese. So now the Marines are going out on search and destroy missions. And this is ridiculous because they're going out into the backyard of the Vietnamese who fought the Chinese for 2000 years. They're using techniques that they use to uh, beat the Chinese. The Vietnamese are superbly confident that they're gonna beat these uh, interlopers. Well, we go from 7,000 advisors to, 5, 000, to plus 5,000 Marines. By 1967, we have half a million people, troops in Vietnam. Now look at, let's say the Filipinos put in half a million Filipino troops into California. Well, let's see, each, each, each soldier has got what? Two pair of boots? Let's see, 500,000 times two, it's a million, how did a million boots get from the Philippines to California? They were shipped there. How do you get airplanes from uh, from the United States to Vietnam? You gotta ship them. This is unbelievable. Each of those 500,000 troops, how much money did they have in their pocket at one time? Let's just say $10. 10 times 500, that, that's $5 million. What if they had $100 uh, in a month? That's $50 million you're shipping over just, just for the troops? How about the infrastructure? When the troops poo, there's toilets on these bases. They're flushing. Where's that poo going? You know, you're hiring millions of people to service these 500,000. How many pens did you did you bring over? How many you know air conditioning units to to uh, cool the bars? They had Budweiser. They had hamburgers. So I'm just saying. This 500,000 troops wasn't just 500,000 troops. This involved an infrastructure of millions of people. Well, guess what? Some of those millions of people were Vietnamese. So on the Da Nang Air Base, the go-go dancers were Vietnamese girls and the bartender was a Vietnamese guy and the barber, uh, the barber was a, 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 a Vietnamese guy and the, you know, the guy digging the, the latrine over there was Vietnamese and they were all smiling. Well, these were spies. Vietnam has a saying, if the enemy sets one foot on our soil, everybody fights, including the women. Everybody. 
So everybody. So yeah, you volunteered to help the Americans. You got paid in dollars. You were the barber, but you were talking to the soldier who's going out. You know, I got to get a haircut because I'm going out tomorrow. Oh, really? What time? Uh, about 10 a.m. Oh, where are you going? You know, oh, we're going to go on a, you know. So I interviewed Vietnamese who said, we rarely had a helicopter come in and surprise us. He said, we knew where they were going to land. And he said, helicopters were great. I mean, folks, go on YouTube and search the Vietnam War and the announcer, you know, Americans came in with helicopters so that they were mobile. They weren't mobile, they were static. The Vietnamese fighters told me, you know, helicopters go in a straight line. Once they take off and if you know where they're gonna go, you know their flight path. And one guy said, you know, we got told by the barber or the go-go girls or whatever, you know, that the helicopter was gonna land on this spot on the side of a hill. We went to the side of the hill and we saw the wind blowing and it was dry grass. So we got a bunch of kerosene and when the helicopters came in, we poured the kerosene, we lit it on fire when they landed and the fire took care of those guys and we shot them in the flames. You know, this is pretty cheap uh, stuff. I, another guy took me out to what we would call a battlefield. And he said, we knew the Marines were gonna land by the river. There's only one flat area they can land. And then they had to walk through the village to go up to the hills to search for the insurgents. So, you know, the Marines walk through the village and they see the toothless ladies and the Buffalo boys with no shoes picking their teeth. And they think a bunch of dumb peasants. Well, those dumb peasants were memorizing every single grenade on the waist of those Marines. And the Marines go up in the hills, and and my friend, this guy I interviewed, Mr. Key, uh, you know, interviews the peasants, and they know exactly how many Marines, exactly how many rifles, you know, uh, and and they give them just great information. So Mr. Key lines up his guys in the bushes, and he knows the Marines when they come down from the mountains, they've got to walk by these bushes to get to the helicopter. So he lines his guys all up with uh, guns. And then he's up in a tree. And when the Marines are, are you know, optimally placed for a slaughter, he waves a, a flag and all his guys start shooting. He said it was a four minute operation. All the Marines were dead. He said, we grabbed their equipment. And he said, I, I, I think the whole thing was done in 10 to 15 minutes. You know, this is senseless to try to fight the Vietnamese. I mean, they have got it down and I can tell other stories like that. So by 1967, politically in the United States, and this is where most of the Tet Offensive Action happens, is in the United States, is that Johnson you know, is a politician and he has to run in 1968, November 1968. And there's protests going on. There's hundreds of thousands of people protesting in the United States. And Johnson has to show that he's winning. So he brings General Westmoreland. Look at a picture of General William Westmoreland. Geez, you couldn't have gotten a young John Wayne to look any better. Chiseled features, you know, blonde, World War II veteran. And he puts General Westmoreland in front of a joint session of Congress. And Westmoreland says, you know, we got 500 troops, we're winning, the enemy's on the run, and you know, the war's almost over. And Johnson is smiling, you know, he's gonna win re-election. And 
Um, and, you know, I saw that uh, address to Congress and it's like, wow, we're winning the war. Then in January, the tables turn. Now we're in January 1968 and boom, boom, boom. You know, the Vietnamese are nibbling at the edges. Look at California. Most of the population's on the coast and then you go to mountains. It's the same with Vietnam. So, so think of the population on the coast and then there's noise coming from the mountains. There's this attack and that attack on the, on the periphery out in the boonies. So, uh, so Ho Chi Minh is drawing uh, the American troops away from the cities, you know, into the brush, into the mountains. And then a big battle happens up at the DMZ. Now remember the DMZ is splitting Vietnam in two. So we got, you know, we, we've got Saigon down at San Diego and we got Hanoi up in Northern California. California split in two with the DMZ. And right on the Southern end, uh, on the, you know, just South of the DMZ is a place called Quezon. And this is a very famous battle and it's never put in context. But in January, I was watching this on TV with my dad. There's a Marine contingent on top of Saigon up on this mountain and boom, 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 they're getting attacked by artillery. Oh man, the Vietnamese uh, artillery takes out the airport. Oh, boom, boom, helicopters are being down. Marines are being killed. Well, this is such a big deal to LBJ and General Westmoreland that they build a model of Quezon in the White House. And there's pictures, it's, you know, Americans don't like to look at this because it's just a fool as a president. He's, he's down in the down in this uh, map room looking at this clay model of Quezon with little flags, you know, and he can't lose Quezon. Why? Because in 1954, the French were defeated at Den Ben Pu. You can look it up. It's a it's a huge, famous battle. And so, uh, you know, the Ho Chi Minh forces psychologically knew that the Americans would think, oh, wow, here's another critical battle right by the DMZ, a critical hill, Quezon, and they'll have to defend it. Well, defend it, we were flying in uh, water from the Philippines to defend this thing. We were airlifting in ammunition, the president of the United States were gonna hold this thing. It was completely useless to hold that mountain. And eventually we abandoned it. There was no strategic reason. We were being fooled by the Vietnamese who knew that uh, we would commit forces. Now, are you with me? The populations along the coast and along the mountainside, they're making, the Vietnamese are making noises to draw the troops away. Now there's Quezon and Walter Cronkite every single night, the battle of Quezon. This, this happened and one Marine died and they airlifted that and man, all of America's watching it. The president of the United States is watching it. What's happening at Quezon? Well, all the troops, all the military focus is up there. And then Tet comes, it's the New Year's. Everybody relaxes in Tet. Tet is the combination in American terms. If you took Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, New Year's and 4th of July and combined all that relaxation into a one 10 day period, that's the Vietnamese Tet. So the Americans, you know, kind of relaxed, it's Tet. You know, nothing happens during Tet. 
But there's this battle up in Quezon and there's some mountain battles. So what I'm trying to say is Ho Chi Minh pulled the troops away from the coast. And then guess what? When Tet hits, Ho Chi Minh hits. And boom, 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 boom. Every major city in Vietnam is hit simultaneously by guerrilla forces. We call them guerrillas. You know, they call them patriots. So to get ready for Tet, you know, they uh, uh, if you were an American observer, oh, they're bringing in uh, uh, um, wagon loads of flowers. Well, underneath those flowers were rifles and grenades and artillery. They, you know, they were moving all this into the city while the Americans were distracted, getting ready for a holiday. Now, Ted happens, and you know, all of a sudden, someone like me, a little boy watching Walter Cronkite, the the action goes from General Westmoreland saying the war's already won, to Kaysan, oh man, are we going to keep this hill? To hey, what the hell's going on here? Every single city in Vietnam's hit. Just, just just, a minute. Look at this on TV. The Vietnamese drew, drove a car up to the American embassy. Now I'm sitting in Saigon. I could take the listener by the hand and walk about five minutes from my apartment right here. And now it's the American consulate because the embassy's up in Hanoi. Back then, Saigon was the artificial cap, American capital of Vietnam. So that was the embassy, but it's the same wall. And they drove a car up, you know, they didn't have to come in with a tank. They just drove a car up to the wall, boom, blew a hole in the wall. And then all of a sudden, about 20 uh, Vietnamese are on the embassy grounds. Well, guess what? Why did they do 911 with the World Trade Center? Because the world press is there. Guess what? When you invade the embassy grounds in 1968, there's a lot of cameras around. All the, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, whatever, newsmen were able to rush and they filmed like this. I mean, don't hold me to the facts. I don't know if it was, I forgot if it was a seven hour battle or a 14 hour battle, but they were battling on the grounds of the embassy. Well, there he is behind the tree. Oh, a dead Marine. And we're like, what's going on? This war is already won. There's the grounds of the American embassy, the American flag, civilian employees of the embassy with uh, machine guns defending the embassy. You know, this is not a war won. This is a war lost. This is incompetent. So what I'm trying to say here is the war, what, what Ho Chi Minh was trying to do was win the war in the minds of the Americans. Now, if you look at the anti-war movement in America, you'll think, oh yeah, that started with uh, Noam Chomsky in the Boston Commons, or uh, no, 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 it was uh, Joe Blow in San Francisco organized that, well, just a minute, Ho Chi Minh in the 1930s was teaching his acolytes, look, when the Westerners come into Vietnam, there'll be photographs. And these photographs will make it to the newspapers of Auckland, New Zealand, and Paris, France, and New York, New York, and Chicago, and, and Toronto. And it'll be a Westerner in a helmet, you know, pointing a rifle at a peasant. And this isn't gonna go well. 
and there's going to be anti-war protests, and we're going to win the war in the enemy's home. Ho Chi Minh lived 30 years overseas studying propaganda. He was an artist. He was an author. He was published. He knew about propaganda. So if anybody thinks that these anti-war demonstrations in the West were homegrown in the West, well, then you tell me why Ho Chi Minh in the 1930s was giving classes on how this would happen. He predicted it and he stimulated it. So if you come to Saigon with me right now and we go to the war museum downtown here about 15 minutes away from me, the, on the first floor, there's all these posters. Oh, the uh, Vietnam anti-war uh, protest in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, 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 the uh, Vietnam anti-war protest in Santiago, Chile. And you just see all these posters and you just think, oh yeah, these are all the anti-war protests from all around the world. No, 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 they came out of the mind of Ho Chi Minh. The reason they're on the ground floor is because that's how Ho Chi Minh thought they'd win the war psychologically. So the importance of tech is not the detail that they fought in Hawaii for this amount and they went from this town to that town and they had this casualties here. And you know, the Americans were eventually able to reassert control, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to affect little boys like me in Antigo, Wisconsin, and my father and taxpayers who had just been told the war was won. And then we witnessed a, a 10 hour battle in the US. We couldn't even protect the US embassy. So psychologically, uh, and this is something I just don't understand the Ken Burns and these guys don't bring it out because they don't come over here and talk to the Vietnamese. But the Tet Offensive was not about taking cities. It was about influencing the American mind. So guess what? <clears throat> Tet, February, the populace thinks this, is, this isn't going anywhere. Anti-war protests increase. Gene McCarthy sees this and says, I think I'll run for president. He does pretty well and Johnson looks weak. Robert F. Kennedy sees this weakness and says, hey, I'm gonna jump in. And guess what? I was sitting in, my, in the den, 321 Fifth Avenue, Antigo, Wisconsin, and I saw Lyndon Bain Johnson get on the television and he shocked everyone, including his wife. I want to announce that I will not accept the nomination as your president and I will not run. I think it's more important that I attend to the heavy duties of the prick. You know, he was just lying. He was a beaten man by the Tet Offensive, by Ho Chi Minh, who waged a psychological war. And that's the bottom line with the Tet Offensive. Forget all the geography and they hit this town at this time and this happened. What they did is they won the war where Ho Chi Minh had predicted the war would be won in the 1930s. And that was in the minds of the enemy back home. That is the 1968 Tet Offensive. Thank you, James. I um, uh, Can I say something? Please. Yeah, I, it reminds me as you were talking about this, it reminds me of uh, the uh, of the Chinese you know the art of war and the, and the thirty six the thirty six um, um, uh, axioms of of war, 
and how in the United, how for the Chinese, the greatest generals are the ones that never fire a shot. They're the ones that don't have to go onto the battlefield and use psychology and use behind the scenes. And of course, unfortunately, Ho Chi Minh um, and the Viet Cong and the entire population, including the women, as you said, all had to fight because there was no way they could not not fight. But it's just, I think it's, a, and it, it's <clears throat> it reminds me of that idea that you use psychology, uh, you know, uh, uh, use propaganda, uh, you know, to, to weaken the en enemy and, 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 and cause them to lose resolve and cause them to doubt themselves. And uh, that's, that's, all, that's all presented in the art of war. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, Ho Chi Minh obviously <clears throat> did the same thing uh, with uh, with the united states so uh, it's a wonder it's a wonderful story and uh, i'm really glad you shared it with us today so ho chi minh didn't just read the art of war he translated it three times he sat down with original chinese and translated it into vietnamese three times mm -hmm. you know if you've ever you know, as a writer, transposed a copy to a paragraph, you know it pretty well, you know. Book mm -hmm. three times. Yeah, so in the 1930s was teaching the art of war. He was an expert on the art of war. And he studied, studied under Mao. So the point is, I mean, he ran the whole war with the art of war, but the Tet Offensive was one, you know, in the minds of individual Americans. That's mm -hmm. where the battle and William Westmoreland never understood it to the day he died. <laughs> and they, no. apparently, they apparently don't seem to understand it in Ukraine or any place else they go. It's just a, one disaster after another. So it's just a, American militaries just, I think they, they live in a dream world of their own, of their own certitude. And I think Westmoreland was in, that, was in that frame of mind. And Ho Chi Minh taught him a lesson. Well, let's do another session on that. I just just wanted to get this out that people know that they know the phrase Tet Offensive, but they don't connect it with with, you know, a psychological holiday that surprised America. It ran a president out. Um, Johnson would not have to had RFK assassinated, you know, yeah, yeah. it run. Nixon wouldn't be president. I mean, the Tet Offensive changed history yeah absolutely well hopefully we'll have another uh, installment about johnson uh, from another from another angle um and uh the um and for those of you out there uh who don't know right now it actually is tet in vietnam and chinese new year in china it's the year of the rabbit in china and the year of the cat in uh, vietnam so it, now, 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 since 1975, Tet in Vietnam is much more relaxed than it was during the war. <laughs> right? Yeah, we're very peaceful here. And <laughs> you know, all the vets, the Vietnam vets said, you know, Vietnam is a country of peace. We didn't invade anybody, but you come to our front porch and everybody. <laughs> Well, James, thank you for a wonderful presentation, and uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, and we'll have to get back on for uh, the for the the real the real Lyndon Baines Johnson, and um, 
and um, looking looking forward to it soon. So um, uh, take care, stay well uh, in beautiful uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Okay, JBE signing off.